Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we focus on the ocean and the way it can harbour salty and fresh water in strange places. Now, when you think about a desert, you don't normally think of an ocean, but there's regions of the South Pacific that are pretty much like that. Plus, there's also parts of the ocean that are hiding underneath the ocean floor, large amounts of fresh water, and other parts of the oceans that have ocean-spanning macroalgae blooms. All this and more as we look at the oceans this week. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. The line from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's famous The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner evokes a certain mystical thought about the ocean. The fact that, well, You're surrounded by water, and despite that very fact, you are in one of the driest places on Earth. And there's plenty of these dry places, because in the middle of the ocean, of course, you're surrounded by salt water, and there's not a drop to drink, so to speak. And if you think about somewhere else, like Antarctica, it also can be, surprisingly, incredibly dry. A desert, even. Mostly because you are in the middle of a frozen tundra that has no liquid water around, and any liquid water near you has a strong chance of being salt. But the ocean can be a desert in in many other sorts of ways, more than just the absence of fresh water. Now, researchers from the Max Planck Institute of Marine Biology have recently completed a six-week-long cruise through some pretty surprisingly desert-like conditions in the South Pacific, and they summarised their findings in the latest journal of the Applied Environmental Microbiology. Now, where they visited is known as the South Pacific Gaia, and Gaia just means a rotation, basically a rotary ocean current system. And they would have been studying the South Pacific Gaia because it's in the middle of the South Pacific, far, far away from any landmass. It's incredibly remote and is incredibly large in size. It covers 37 million square kilometres. Now, for a size comparison, the entirety of the United States is 10 million square kilometres. So this is three times or more, actually almost four times larger than the United States. But it's so remote and so isolated, it's actually rarely studied. It's in fact the least studied region on our planet. Now, one of the fascinating parts about this area of the world is you are so far away from land that not only do space mission planners and satellite controllers like to crash orbital debris there, as we've spoken about before, you're also incredibly far away from any land, which means that there are no dust particles inflows from basically the mouths of rivers rushing into the water. All of that dust helps provide nutrients to the water itself. Now that obviously, if you're in the middle of the ocean, far, far away from any other land sources, also means not a lot of nutrients. And there's another big problem too. If you're far, far away from any land masses, you basically have full solar exposure. Solar irradiance in these regions is dangerously high, reaching a UV index that is labeled extreme. Now, all of these combinations make it a pretty inhospitable place to live. Not only if you are human and need fresh water, because there's none of that around in the middle of the ocean, but also if you're something that lives in the water, there's not a lot for you to eat because, well, there's not a lot of nutrients present as well. And the UV index makes it incredibly difficult for microcellular organisms to survive in higher levels of the water. So for all these regions, the scientists from the Max Planck Institute have been going out there with their boats to try and study what can possibly survive in this very inhospitable patch 
of the South Pacific Ocean? And the answer is pretty surprising. Now, there is life present there, much like the chlorophyll-containing phytoplankton, minute algae. But, you know, that kind of plankton has to swim down, exist down at depths below 100 metres, mostly because, well, if it has any chance of existing at all, it can't be anywhere that could be baked by that UV light. Now, the actual result of all of this is that that area of the South Pacific has incredibly clear water. There's no dust or particulate matter from river runoff, and there's also not a lot of microorganisms living there as well. The water is incredibly deep too, so that means that you end up with really, really clear water. Now, these researchers on this cruise all the way from Chile to New Zealand tracked microbial communities at 15 different stations at water depths from 20 meters all the way down to 5,000 meters, which is basically from the surface all the way down to the sea floor. Now, if you compare the ocean that they were studying, the South Pacific, to the Atlantic, they found roughly a third less microorganisms in the South Pacific waters than they do in the Atlantic. It's pretty much the lowest cell numbers they've ever seen in any oceanic surface waters. Now, they did find some species there, which were familiar, but they were pretty rare ones to be sure. There was, however, a pretty unusual organism, Aegean 169, that has previously only ever been found in deep water that had sort of managed to swim its way up in the South Pacific. Now, what they were looking for is trying to find some creatures that had exhibited some pretty interesting adaptions. Now, most of the microorganisms were found at a depth of around 100 to 150 meters below the surface. Now, that's pretty interesting because it shows that most of these microorganisms have adapted to particularly high levels of UV light. As we've established before, when you have pretty extreme conditions, life sometimes ends up super specialized with some really odd skills to help it survive in the tough conditions around it. Now, this is a pretty interesting result, but it's still very early days because this whole region of the ocean is very poorly understood and studied, despite being so huge. It goes to show that vast empty spaces aren't as empty as they appear. And if they are empty, that might actually be telling us a lot more about the actual nature of the ocean itself. From a surprising absence of life in the Pacific Ocean, all the way across to the Atlantic Ocean, which can sometimes have a giant, record-breaking belt of brown algae that can stretch all the way from West Africa through to the Gulf of Mexico. And researchers from the University of South Florida, USF, working in collaboration with NASA researchers, have been studying what's known as the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt, or GASP. They've recently published a paper in the journal Science. Now, this big belt of brown macroalgae is called sargassum, and it forms in response to basically ocean currents. Now, the problem is it's existed for forever, as far as we can understand. In fact, the name sargassum is, takes its name from a certain region of the Gulf of Mexico, Sargosa, where actually Christopher Columbus himself saw these large pools of this seaweed and algae. Now that, from the 15th century, is something that we've known about, but ever since 2011, well, this study of this large piece of life that's spreading across the Atlantic has been getting worse and stranger. In fact, from 2011 through to 2015, the bloom kind of got 
out of control. And that's what's been studied by this recent paper from the University of South Florida. Now, to understand this large macro bloom of algae and how we ended up last year with more than 20 million tons of this algae floating in the Gulf of Mexico and all the way across to Africa, which, by the way, 20 million tons, that's heavier than 200 fully loaded aircraft carriers. That's a lot of algae. And the problem with this large amount of algae or Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt is what it does to the environments around it. Now, as we said before, this is a naturally occurring phenomena, but the problem is that it's gotten really out of hand. Now, when it's in patchy doses, not in huge ocean-spinning clumps, Sargassum actually contributes to pretty much making the ocean a healthier place. It gives a habitat for turtles, crabs, and fish, and birds. It produces oxygen via photosynthesis, just like any other plant. And when it's all like that in the open ocean, Sargassum is a great ecological resource. It's habitat, food, and refuge for animals. And often you can see fish and dolphins floating around these large mats of sargassum. But the problem is, when it gets into coastal areas and gets stuck on the coastlines, then it can cause bigger problems. When it gets condensed and concentrated into a pretty thick mat, it makes it hard for species to move and breathe through it, especially when the mats crowd along the coastline. And if those mats then die, they sink en masse to the bottom of the sea floor, which smothers coral and seagrass. Or, even worse, they rock up on the beach, releasing hydrogen sulfide gas into the atmosphere. So that's an example of how this natural process can kind of get out of hand. Now, before 2011, most of the sargassum in the ocean was primarily found in patches around the Gulf of Mexico and the Sargosa Sea. But what researchers noted in 2011, and you can, they researched this using aerial surveys as well as satellite photos with the help of NASA, is that it started to expand out in places that had never been before, like the central part of the Atlantic Ocean. And then it started arriving in gigantic globs that started to suffocate shorelines and become a nuisance for local economies. Some countries, like Barbados, declared a national emergency last year just because they're pretty much seaside pristine resorts were swamped with large amounts of these algae blooms. So something had to change in the ocean's chemistry to allow this algae bloom to not only expand such a crazy amount, but also to able to spread so far. Now, to unravel the mystery, the team analysed the fertiliser composition patterns in Brazil, specifically looking at the way as the Amazon is deforested, the Amazon River discharge changes. And they took two years worth of nitrogen and phosphorus measurements from central parts of the Atlantic Ocean, amongst other places as well. What they seem to show from this preliminary set of data is that the explosion in sargassum correlates to increased deforestation and increase in fertilizer usage, both of which have drastically increased since 2010. So the problem is, when you deforest the Amazon, you get more runoff because there's no forest there to help absorb the water. And if you replace those forests with farmland, again, it increases runoff as well. The problem is all that runoff runs through the Amazon River and dumps out into the Atlantic Ocean, causing, unsurprisingly, the algae to now have an amazing new food source. And they see 
through satellite imagery, they studied major blooms between the year 2011 and 2018. And it happened every year, except for 2013. And not quite sure why it occurred in 2013, or didn't seem to have any large impact. Now the problem is, once this bloom first took charge in 2011, you can basically have a continuing boosting cycle, where those that don't die off in the winter, basically it starts in spring and has, sends out through the winter, aided by ocean currents, but those that don't die off actually start the seed population for the next colony of large bacteria. So trying to predict and understand these blooms is difficult because lots of different larger scale climate conditions can make a bloom more or less likely to occur. If you have more rainfall runoff, then the oceans will be less salty, less saline, which can help make it harder for the bacteria to grow. Um, but also if there's changes in the sea temperature, the sea temperature is higher than normal, then the algae doesn't bloom as early because if conditions didn't favor the algae growth. So it's things like that that need to be considered for these microorganisms to survive and how we can sort of predict these large-scale blooms before they get out of hand. But nevertheless, this is going to be something that we're going to have to deal more and more with as our climate changes and things from the human environment starts to impact the world around it, sometimes in hard-to-foresee ways. So logging the Amazon can have impacts on climate change for sure, but also it can also have impacts on ocean health. Because our ecosystems are related, but sometimes it's in pretty interesting ways. This is some great research from the University of South Florida, recently published in the journal Science. Now, from a tale of being stuck stranded in the middle of the ocean without any fresh water to drink, to, well, actually a surprising amount of fresh water lurking deep beneath the ocean. Now, you probably are familiar with the concept of an aquifer, and an aquifer is effectively a large cavity of water stored underground. And replenishing and recharging the aquifer is part of the water cycle. Basically, as rain is evaporated, as water is evaporated from the oceans, falls onto the land as rain either runs off into rivers and straight down, or maybe seeps into the ground into an aquifer. These can go either of two ways. But aquifers can be pretty large. For example, in Australia, there's an incredibly large aquifer that resides in the basically the central right half of Australia, going all the way down from North Queensland down to South Australia and northern New South Wales. It's called the Great Artesian Basin. And it's the deepest, largest artesian basin in the world. It stretches over 1.7 million square kilometers. And the water inside it measures between 30 and 100 degrees. Now, that's a huge volume of water, pretty deep down on the ground, but it's tapped for people's use in bore waters. Now, that's an example of a pretty large aquifer. But there's other ones out there too. Australia is not the only place that has these aquifers. Everywhere it does, but there's one that is pretty incredibly large and appears in a pretty odd place. Now this aquifer itself actually stretches all the way from Massachusetts in North America through to New Jersey along the coastline and extends out 50 miles to the edge of the continental shelf. 
Now, if that was found on the actual surface of the water, it would create a lake that's roughly 15,000 square miles in size, which is not as massive as the Great Artesian Basin for sure, but it's a pretty large aquifer. But it actually stretches in the coastline all the way out to the ocean. So you end up with, well, underneath the salty ocean, this giant aquifer of fresh water sitting trapped underneath the sea floor. And that is a pretty amazing thing to think about. And it's what researchers from Columbia University's Lamonte Doty Earth Observatory, including lead author of this paper, Chloe Gustafson, have been studying, and is all summarized in the journal Scientific Reports. Now, the first initial hints of this aquifer came in the 1970s, when oil companies started to drill off the coastline of Massachusetts, and instead of discovering oil, sometimes hit fresh water instead. Now, the scientists weren't sure if these oil drilling were just finding isolated pockets of fresh water, or in fact discovering some large, strange, under-ocean freshwater deposits. Now, it took about 20 years to get more and more information, including study co-author Kerry Key, uh, helping to work with oil companies to get better and better imaging techniques to try and get a better picture of what's going on in this particular region. He decided to see if they could use some of this technology, including electromagnetic imaging, to image the subsea floor. Now, that technology is often used to hunt for oil, but can be repurposed to look for another liquid, in this case, fresh water. So, Kerry Key and Rob L. Evans started to scour the coasts off the size started to scour the coasts of Massachusetts and New Jersey, from Martha's Vineyard all the way down. And they're looking at these drill holes that had hitched freshwater sediments. And by doing imaging runs along this sort of trajectory, they could get a measure of how large this aquifer was. And they found that, well, it's not like there's just isolated pockets of fresh water. They're more or less continuous, pretty much extending all the way out to the shallow edge of the continental shelf, sometimes around 75 miles away from the coastline. Now, normally they started around 600 feet below the ocean floor, and so they're existing in a pocket between 600 feet and 1,200 feet, which actually is a good idea for it to help quantify the actual volume of water, because now they know a distance and they know a depth or a, vol a height range, and from that they can calculate out basically how much water would be present there. And showing that it's continuous means that it actually helps them identify the full aquifer. Now, how did the water get trapped underneath the seabed? Well, geologists think that around 15,000 to 20,000 years ago, basically the end of the last glacial ice age, most of the world's water was locked up in miles deep ice, particularly North America. Now, in areas like New Jersey and Long Island's New England coastline, they had all these massive, massive glaciers. As a result, sea levels were much, much lower. Uh, now, most of what is the US continental shelf now is actually was exposed land back then. Now when all that ice melted, you ended up with all these sediments formed and we had these massive huge river deltas occurring in the North American continent at the time and sea levels rose. Now it's possible that you could basically fossilize and trap some of that fresh water from these river deltas under the ground of these massive runoffs. And also when those runoffs happen, these landslides and so on, you can sort of get trapped in aquifer. Now, the aquifer is generally freshest near the shoreline, and as you get further away, it tends to get saltier, mostly because the rock at the sea floor is slightly porous, so salt water is leaking in. 
And by the time you get to the aquifer's outer edges, it's sort of typically around the 15 parts per thousand, which is the way of measuring salt. Um, normally seawater is around 35 parts per thousand. So that's pretty exciting. Um, but it's not probably the only place in the world that has one of these underwater aquifers. It's just one of these ones that have been found first, thanks to a collaboration with what was originally an oil hunt. So this is some great work from Columbia University that goes to show how strange the oceans can be and that lurking beneath the salty ocean can be massive reservoirs of fresh water. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From fresh water to large ocean-spanning algal blooms, this is what you found out about some of the strange things lurking or not in our oceans and how they can show ways life flourishes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.